How is the 10 a.m. doing? If you're in the room, we're excited you're here. If you're online, we're excited you're here. It is 36 past, and I'm only getting up now. And uh, I want to tell you I've got a lot to go. So I'm going to jump straight in if that's okay. Lester has a thing that he says at youth. He tells, because obviously everyone has their phone, they take notes, and that's what we want them to do. Tells them, put on an airplane note mode because we're about to take off. Uh, it's a great line. So we're about to take off. Uh, last week, we did kick off this brand new series called Why Church. And uh, the tagline really tells you what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve through this series. Um, we believe when you look at God's word, when you look at the church, there are ancient truths that can apply to us in a post-lockdown world. Like, why does the church matter? What needs to, what should change and what shouldn't change? And we've kind of skinned it by looking at a bunch of question words. And so last week in week one, James looked at the question word of who. Uh, who is the church? Who's the church for? Who leads the church? If you missed it, I'd encourage you to catch up on YouTube. Guys online, you're right there. You can catch up after this. And I think it's so important as we go into week two that you know we are looking at uh, the what question. And so the big question we're going to tackle today is what are the essentials of church? What are the essentials of being the church? What do we believe about the church? What, as we look at scripture, we want it to inform who we are and what we do. And so I want to look at it under these two big headings, belief and being. Because belief matters in that it shapes our being the church, who we are as the church, and therefore what we do as the church. Those two things have to talk to each other, and it has to be grounded in the belief that we have and we hold as Scripture shows us. So let's dive into heading number one, belief. This idea of what do we believe about the church. As we look to Scripture, what does it have to say? Here's a couple things I want to highlight. Number one, first one, is the church is God's plan A. I want to make that very clear. And I'll take you to a passage. It's a verse in Ephesians chapter 3, one of my favorites, because it speaks so personally to the burden and the purpose that God has placed over my life. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says this, so that through what? Through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Understand God could have brought redemption, could have brought his wisdom, could have brought his story through anything, but he chooses the vehicle of the church. That actually he has set up the church to be this manifold wisdom. If you don't know what manifold means, manifold means to unite many things into one space. And so you'll have an intake manifold within a car engine. And so there'll be many pipes coming in, different places, different things, air coming in, fuel coming in, brought into the same place, into the right place, so that the thing that it is meant to do can be done. Combustion, make it, making the engine move, give us power. And so this is what the church has been set up to do, that it's set up by God, that it's fueled by God to bring all of his truth to bring all of his wisdom, to bring all of his mercy, to bring all of his love and his life into one place, into the church, so that the world can know what it means. So there is no greater picture, there is no greater agent for the move of the kingdom, for the move of God, for the wisdom of God, for the story of God to move forward than the church itself. And this speaks so deeply to me because at 16 years old, the calling God placed on my life, the burden he gave me in my heart was for the local church. And so when I read something like that, 
that God chose the church to make his wisdom known. It does something. He, God told me three things when I was 16 years old. He told me, you're going to be in ministry. It's going to be ministry forever, and you're going to lead churches. That's what he told me. And so everything that I have done from that point until now has been trying to move the needle forward in what God called me. And so the burden he placed in my heart, if I had to articulate and vocalize it, which is something that a lot of people can't do, but I want you to know it's important. You should be able to do it. The burden he placed in my heart is that church would matter to people increasingly and exponentially more. And so everything I do is to help you have church matter more to you. Because when it matters more to us, it means we're going to prioritize and value it in everything more. It's going to be prioritized in our schedule. It's going to be prioritized in our budget. It's going to be prioritized in our relationships, in our families. And when we get that right, we start to move in the ways of God. And we start to move in thinking as his kingdom moves. Not in the way that seeks to serve me, but the way that seeks to serve him. Next thing I want to pull out is that the church is simple yet profound. You just heard about the landing. This is a line you will hear in the landing start of the, start of the game. We believe in a simple church model within City Hope Church. And the reason is church can be so complex. And yet, as God has called us and set it up, it is very simple. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a, a big impact. Because as you dive into the simplicity of church and what it is, you understand that it is just so profound. The message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel is actually quite simple. But its impact and its value is profound over all history and over all our lives. I think it's the same with the church. And many of us think we know what church is. And if I had to ask you, can you define it? Can you describe it? You might give it a go, but you start, as you dive into it, you start to realize it's quite difficult to get a hold of. It's almost like the idea, the dilemma you run into. If I had to ask you, please describe or define something like breakfast. We all know what breakfast is. We all think we know what breakfast is. But it's quite difficult to define because when you put an overarching statement out like, well, breakfast is the first meal of the day. I know a lot of people, Chris is one of them. He's on Robocop camera right there. He never eats before like 11 a.m. So is that breakfast or is that brunch? And sometimes he's a bit late. So now it's 12 p.m. plus. Does that mean it's lunch? We know that's lunch, but then how can it be breakfast? But it's his first meal of the day. And so there's a bit of ambiguity in it. Maybe you say actually breakfast is more defined by the type of food. Bacon, eggs, can I get an amen? And cereal. But I want you to know this. The early household is not ashamed to have brinner. Bacon and eggs at 6 p.m. is glorious. And I know the non-parents in the room probably will judge me, but the parents will understand. I have two toddlers. At least once a week, they're having OTs for dinner. At least once a week. Because there's that day where they're not going to eat anything else, but they love OTs, a bit of milk, and they're sorted. Go bath, bed. Let's, let's do it. And so you see there's a, there's a little bit of ambiguity in trying to define and describe it. I think the same is true when we think about the church. Because it is so simple, yet it is so profound. And the simplicity is actually sometimes what trips us up in understanding it fully. Now, the New Testament will teach a vast and diverse understanding, comprehensive view of the church. But I want to highlight even how it uses the word church. It gives the label church to many different things. In Romans 16, Paul speaks and he says, would you greet the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's home? So there's a church in a house. In in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, hey, I greet the saints, the church in Corinth. 
So there's now a church in a city, many local churches, but within a city called the church. You then have a region of local churches called the church in Acts chapter 9 where it says the church in Judea, the church in Samaria, the church in Galilee. And then you have the church referred to as the church over the entire world. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, a well-known verse, especially on the back of marriage conference, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not the church that's in Priscilla and Aquila's home, not the church in Corinth, the church, the entire church. And so the biblical teaching of church is that there is both a universal church and a local church. And it's important we understand that because the universal church is God's people over all times in all places. And you are in the universal church when you are under the lordship of Jesus. But then you have local expressions of the universal church in local churches where the people of God will meet and assemble with the people God has grafted them together with to meet in community, to come under leadership, to come under some form of organization, whatever that style, venue, whatever that might look like. Next, I want to give us about the church, and I think it's a helpful distinction, is that the church is both visible and invisible. And we need to grab a hold of this distinction because it, it actually stops us going into error. It's actually a warning to us. It was first introduced, this distinction, by a guy called Augustine. I know there's Americans in the room, Augustine. Um, Augustine, who was an early church father, and it was developed right throughout theological writing in the church, through the Reformation, even beyond. And it's a helpful distinction. And I want to put this up for you just to show what we're talking about when we mean the visible church and the invisible. In the visible church, you have the saved and lost present. You can see them. They're there. In the invisible, we only have the saved. In the visible, we have currently living people, but in the invisible, we have both dead and living in Christ. In the visible, you'll have many local churches. In the invisible, there's that one universal church. In the visible, you'll have differing denominations, different styles. Different, there'll be drums on stage and there won't be. And then in the invisible, you have no single denomination. In visible church, you will have a part of the body of Christ, but in the invisible church, you have the entire body. In visible, you have types, different types of government, but in invisible, you have Christ only as the head. And the question comes up, well, how do we define who is who? Who draws the line between the visible and the invisible? And the warning for us is that when we draw that line, it's very dangerous. Because when we start to draw the line and we say, well, you're part of the invisible, you are the one who, you are saved and you are not, we start to step on God's toes because actually he is the only one who should be drawing and defining that line. Because he knows the heart of man, we don't. It's actually his church, he has leadership over it, we don't. He is the one, as Revelation says, will separate the sheep and the goats. We don't know. All we can do is act on what we see, and so it's so important we go into the truth of what God is, is talking to us through his word about his church, and we move forward based on that belief. Last one I wanna highlight is this, that the church is perfectly imperfect. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There is a balance and a tension within church that we have to understand, especially when we get disappointed or get hurt. This is actually, Jesus speaks about it when he talks in Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And so he explains that there will be imperfection within my perfect church. There will be those who mess up and are saved. There will be those who mess up and actually are enemies of my kingdom and they will be rejected in the end. We don't get to draw the line. We don't get to define. He does. And so when you hear me say, well, the church is God's plan A, it might be difficult for you to hear because the truth is in your experience, the church has actually been a great agent of pain and disappointment to you. And so it's difficult to hear, well, the church is God's plan A. But I think this tension will help us process that. That's at an individual level, but I even want to take it to a corporate level. We have to be honest as you look through the church throughout all of history. There has been some horrific bad and good within the church's history. There has been some bad where the church has been caught up in horrific things like covering up the truth, like committing great sin. Even within the recent history of this country, the church was used as a medium to prop up a racist system of abhorrent laws that actually went against God's word. But I don't want you to miss that even in the midst of that racist system known as apartheid, there were churches and church leaders who stood against it and said, hey, we're going to be obedient to God's word and not to your law. And so they, even in the midst of the 80s, 90s, had mixed churches, even though the law said, hey, we need to be segregated. I was born into one of those churches that was in the front line of that in the 80s and 90s. I wasn't born in the 80s, just so you know. But I was born into it. And it's so important that we grab a hold of this because even if you look at it at a corporate level or you get to an individual level, we have so many stories of people in this church who this church was not an agent of disappointment or pain. This church actually upheld them in their time of need. And it was done through people in this church, people sitting in these seats, people who are on the stream, people who are, are a part of us and call this place home. But for those who maybe have experienced in your past some sort of pain or disappointment, I think this truth is so important to grab a hold of because you start to realize that this cannot be forgotten, that there is a perfect God and there is imperfect people, that there is a perfect Savior and there are imperfect sinners, that there is a perfect shepherd but imperfect dumb sheep. And so as we process our hurt, whether individually or corporately, we have to look through this lens and say, hey, our hurt is always going to be uh, processed through the tension of there is perfection and imperfection. There is faithfulness from God, but there is unfaithfulness in man. And so if you've been hurt by someone in church or let down or disappointed by a church leader, you can look at it and say, well, there was unfaithfulness on the part of that person. That didn't change the faithfulness of God in his church as he moves it forward. We have to hold the balance. So when we talk about I'll add this part in. Paul often would speak to his churches that he had planted as he wrote letters to them. So he does it when he says to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Rome. I actually saw Beatrice online in a comment section said, hey, good morning, saints. Greeting the saints here at City Hope Church. Can I tell you, that title isn't because we are saintly or because the church in Ephesus was saintly or because the church of Corinth was saintly. They weren't, they were horrible. He calls them saints because, in fact, it's not about their perfection or imperfection. It's actually about the perfection of Jesus over them as their church. It's so important that we hold this tension and process everything through the perfect, imperfect church. The perfectly imperfect church. That's belief. I want to take us to our big heading number two. Big heading number two is being. 
And I very specifically chose the word being because our, our belief doesn't just speak to who we are. It is also our being the church that d- dictates what we do. Because we rightfully look at someone who is an individual, and if they act outside of their belief, we say, hey, that's hypocrisy. You're talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk. And the true is, it should be true of churches and organizations too. If we believe these things, if these things are foundational, when we do something contrary to it, we're being hypocritical. And so the stakes are very high when we have a belief around the church and who we are and the being who we are and how it gets played out in what we do. And so it's so important that in what we do, we value what we believe, that actually it is shaped by what we believe, by the truth of God, and that's the foundation we stand on. So I want to take a look at five essentials for being the church. Because the questions come up, what makes the church the church? What makes a church a church? These are the five essentials. The first two I'm gonna hit very quickly because James hit them last week. Essential number one is ultimate lordship. The banner over the church, Jesus is Lord. The Bible uses the word ecclesia in the New Testament, meaning assembly or gathering. And so a church is first and foremost a gathering of those under the lordship of Jesus. That doesn't mean it's just a bless me club for Christians where we all hug each other. It means that there actually still is space for those who, are, who have an invitation for the lordship of Jesus to come over their lives. And so it's a space where you have the saved and the lost together because the invitation to lordship is always there. Second essential is apostolic leadership. James touched on this last week. It's very clear through the New Testament that the head of the church, the leader of the church is Jesus himself. It is his church, it's his body, it's his bride. But he has put in a structure for human authority within a church, and as you look at it biblically, it is a structure known as eldership. And so in this church, we follow that, and we have elders who are ordained, laid hands on, who care for us, support us, and we're a team of eight guys. That's what it looks like. And it's so important to understand that that's how God works and that's how the New Testament church was set up because those elders are actually charged with guiding and governing and guarding the, the congregation. And it's actually one of the greatest encouragements to partner with a local church because you're not gonna find the verse that says, hey, you must be a member of a local church. You must partner with a local church. But you will find verses that say, hey, you should be submitting to the godly authority God places over you within a local church. That actually church leadership and submitting to church leadership should be done well and should be done unto the Lord. How does that happen if we're not in partnership? And so literally the New Testament is screaming, partnership to the local church should actually be an involuntary response of someone who is under the Lordship of Jesus. It's almost that thing, you don't tell your heart to beat, it just happens because you're alive. And so if you are a New Testament Christian, it should be almost involuntary that it happens that you wanna partner with a local church to come under the submission that God has called you to. That's the first two. Next two are exciting. When the question comes up of what makes a church a church, what makes it possible for us to put on the sign City Hope Church, it's so funny because in the midst of church history and Christian history and human history, we love to debate and to argue and take different stances. But there are these next two characteristics of what makes a church a church are actually unanimously agreed upon throughout history, right back to the first century. It is nuts. 
First one, a church is a church when, number one, the word is rightly preached. And so the essential of church is pure word. Number three, pure word. And so we endeavor to value this and to pursue it here at City. You'll notice that we preach through series. That's the medium and the format that we use. There's other ways to do it, but I, I want you to see foundationally where it's set. And as we preach through series, majority of our series will be preaching through a book. And so this year, the majority of our preaching schedule is actually taken up by going through the book of Acts, hitting every portion of Acts so that we have full understanding. Other series will take portions of a book. We might have a series within like the Psalms and we t pick out a few Psalms and we say, hey, what's God saying to us through this? And then there'll be other series that are topical. Why Church is one of those series. And so we'll bounce around different passages, but we're really still seeking, and this is what is foundational, hey, what is the pure word of God wanting to say to us in this space? Knowing that his spirit will speak through his word to his people. And so there's a theological word, and it's, it's basically the foundation for our preaching and teaching, and it is the word exegesis. That is the method we use. Exegesis means coming out of the word. It's not the opposite, which is eisegesis, meaning, hey, I've got a good idea or a good thought or something I want to teach. Let me go find it in the Bible and preach it to someone. So we believe in that. And that's the methodology we will hit no matter where we are, whatever Sunday of the year, whatever other day of the year, that's how we will do it. Because we really do believe that preaching and teaching is of utmost importance. It's of utmost importance because even as you take a look at Scripture, at the development of the Bible as, the, as a whole, it starts with God speaking His Word. He creates the world through the spoken Word of God. He actually preaches the earth into existence. And then Adam, the first man, is in relationship with God, walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, and God is speaking to Adam. Later on, that word actually gets translated as the same word we use for preach. So as you look at Genesis and God was speaking to Adam, he was actually preaching the word rightly to Adam. The serpent enters, he preaches a twisted word. And what happens? Sin enters, destruction comes along with it. And so God will put in a plan of redemption and he'll go to a guy called Abraham, who was a part of a pagan people, and he preaches a sermon to him. He actually takes him outside, a medium he understood because he was from the Chaldean people who were astrologers. And he shows him the night sky and he basically says, hey, as many stars as there are in the sky, your descendants will outnumber them. And it's through you that I will bless all the peoples of the world because it's through your line salvation will come and Jesus will come. And so the truth is given and then the law is given to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And they will be preached a message because they mess it up badly, a message of repentance and judgment coming through the prophets. And the prophets would preach prophetically that the Messiah would come to save the world. And you get to the Gospels and Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is centered on his preaching. Because what did he come to do? To bring the truth. And then Peter will preach, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in the book of Acts, he'll preach a sermon and the church is born. Do you notice just how important preaching the word rightly is to God, just in how he has dealt with it throughout scripture? Do you see the power of it in bringing creation into being, in actually being the means for our salvation message? We can't miss it. It's why Paul actually reminds the Corinthian church, that messed up church, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, now I would remind you brothers, of what? Of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I, what I also received. First importance, what I also received. He says, I am gonna bring you the truth of God, the word of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it is of first importance. And so if you ever ask the question, hey, what does City Hope value? We value the pure word of God. If you wanna know what we value, it is the gospel, the pure gospel. And this is an easy way to sum it up. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If you wanna know the gospel we preach, it is simply that, that it's all about Jesus, that that's the foundation we stand on. And I wanna say this, the, the willingness of Christians to sit under godly preaching is actually a great act of worship because in doing that, we submit ourselves to God's word. We actually submit ourselves not to just hear God's word, not to just be informed by God's word, but also to be led, because it will always lead us to a response, and that response will be a worshipful one. That response will be after the things of God. That response will be after his kingdom, his way, and his glory. We can't miss just how important it is that even in the midst of our submitting to his word, it is actually an act of worship. I wanna say I love the privilege of preaching in this church. I, I understand fully um, the privilege of standing on this platform. I understand fully the weight of responsibility that it holds. Now a question that often will come up in this space is, well, where do we stand on listening to other preachers? because we have a lot available online in South Africa, overseas. Can I say this up front? There is no problem in you listening to other preachers. There's no problem in having a favorite preacher or a favorite style. None of those things we, we, we actually can expect. But the encouragement, and I wanna say this, actually online church, the, the availability of all the media we have available is actually a gift. It's a gift that we have this stuff available. But we have to hold it in its right place. Because my encouragement would be actually the scrutiny you hold us to in this place, on this stage, sitting in those seats, on this stream, that you hold up that same scrutiny to any preacher you would hear. Because actually you are all, we are all, actually called to test the word. And to ask the question, hey, is this the pure word of God? Because believe me, don't just take Duncan's word for it. Because it's not Duncan's gospel, it's God's. And so we actually sit in the space where the responsibility is on us as we're under the submission of preaching that also we are there to test it. And so the posture we take, and this is an encouragement as we sit under preaching in this place, the posture we take is that we actually are gonna be people who have Bibles out, device or hard copy, that we're gonna, you know, it's why we put it up on the screen so that you can actually see God's word as it is. That you don't just take my word for it, but you see it in scripture itself. We're gonna take notes. I think it's so important to take notes because actually what it does is it helps us revisit a message when we walk out the door. Because if, if this is the last you think or, uh, of this message, it probably hasn't done what it needs to do and it's the pure word of God coming to you. It's so important we take that posture and we understand that there is space here to ask questions. I know practically this is a, a, a monologue 
and that's helpful for the practical sense of what we're doing. But I want you to know that we are always approachable, and I think we are that, and I've got an example of that. Uh, in our last initiative block a couple of weeks ago, um, we, were at a, we had a sharing your faith initiative, and as I had uh, finished up, uh, someone came up to me and said, hey, you know, I've just really loved being a part of the church. I've been coming for the last few Sundays. And I just want you to know, I really appreciate the preaching. And I appreciate how it comes across. I just want you to know that I don't necessarily believe the same stuff, though. I don't necessarily believe everything that you guys say from that platform. And what I loved is that we were approachable enough that he felt he could do that. And he said, hey, could we have a conversation? And what I love is that it's about the pure word of God. It's not about the man of God saying something, we're going to take it. It's saying, hey, here's God's word. Here's how we're seeing it. Here's what it's saying to us. And it actually opens up a dialogue so that we can all grow in God's word as it speaks to us. And so I understand we are always available to have those conversations to no one, no one here is above being challenged. We hold each other to a high standard. We hold each other to the pure word. Every single one of us are responsible for doing that. A great off-ramp here is if you feel maybe perhaps under-equipped to test the word of God yourself, we have, it's where the institute came from. People being matured and equipped in the Bible so that you can test the word for yourself, so that you can be convinced of the word yourself. And so I'd encourage you, if you're very new to the space, the foundations course coming up in Institute is for you. You need to sign up for it afterwards. Do it now. Don't miss out. We make these steps available so that you are equipped to do that all that God is calling us to do. Now, I know that there are... Um, actually, let me move on to the next one. A church is a church when the word is rightly preached. And second characteristic, a church is a church when the sacraments are rightly given, sacraments of baptism and communion. And so that's essential number four, true worship. Essential number four, true worship. See, if the Bible preaches the pure word to our ears, to our minds, and to our hearts, what the sacraments do is preach the truth to our hands, to our eyes, and to our bodies. Because humans sometimes need a physical representation of the truth that they have been preached. Um, I think we miss that we are wired as worshipers. That actually we have been set up, wired by God to worship something or someone. Ladies, gentlemen, if you love sport, this is the reason it's super easy for us to scream at a TV or to go wild on the side of a patch of grass with guys running around on it. It, 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 it's the reason we can get so hyped over a guy hitting a small little white ball into a hole with a flat stick. I've got club champs coming up in two weeks. Be praying for me. I'm working on the flat stick a lot. But the truth is that idea of worship is already ingrained and built within us because we're going to worship something or someone. And in the midst of that worship, I think it's so important that we know because we can often box it into one thing. We box worship in church to simply our time when we're singing. Can I tell you, worship is so much more than that because actually all of life can be worship. Because what worship entails is directing our attention, our affection, and our devotion, our time, and our focus to something. And so actually anything can be worship. We can sing and worship. We can hear a message and worship. We can actually go and have a celebration and still worship. 
Because where are we directing our affection and our attention? And one of the great ways that we get to worship corporately as a body in this place, in this space, is through the sacraments, through baptism, and through communion. Now, in some churches, these are called uh, ordinances, and Christians call them sacraments because they're actually uh, visible representations of invisible spiritual realities. It's a helpful way to understand it. It's almost, it's that truth we can touch. It's the phrase that I love to use. And for a moment, I just want to be honest. Um, maybe you've been in church for a long time. For a moment, would you go with me to a time where maybe you didn't know what church was all about? Uh, would you just for a moment put yourself outside of church and start to think about baptism and communion? And if we have to be 100% honest, they're a little bit odd. Like baptism, we get a bath up here and we dunk someone and then we all go wild when they come out the water. And communion, we have to put those cups on the side so that people don't sit on them, first of all. But their cups are so tiny and small. Like, it's, it's actually cute. Humans are cute. I always say this. Because even outside of church, think about it. If there's a person you really, really like and you want to let them know and you want to take things to the next level, you give them a shiny rock. And when you think about it, it's actually quite odd. And humans are really cute that we think, well, I like this person, let me give them a shiny rock. And I think it's the same with baptism and communion. And yet, when you understand the depth of what's going on behind that little physical representation, what you find is actually the beauty of what it means to be a human. Because we understand these things are not just at face value what they are. We understand that there is far deeper truth behind them. And then we truly get to unlock the beauty of the truth behind them. And so I love to use the analogy of my wedding ring. For you, this probably doesn't mean much. As you look at it, it is like a navy blue silicon ring. It's not even the ring that was there on my wedding day. It is a, even a placeholder. And so to you, it probably doesn't mean too much. But when I look at it, it's very different. Because when I look at this ring, I remember a day when I put a ring on Nikita's finger and when she put a ring on mine and when we made a commitment under God that we were gonna love each other, that we were gonna care for each other, be committed to one, each other, one another, that we were gonna make a covenant that would go until the day we die. And what it actually does is say, hey, this relationship is not based on feeling, this relationship is based on a commitment. What it actually, like society lies to us, society says love is a feeling, it's not, it involves feelings, but love at its core is actually a choice. Love is actually a commitment, because the truth is, and this is why some marriages go to pot, if it's based on feeling, we're out the door on the hard day. But if it's based and foundationally based on commitment, it's a different story. And so this representation gets to remind me of the day where I made a commitment where I stood on a covenant because actually the commitment pointed me back to the promise of Jesus that this wasn't about me and wasn't going to be fueled by me but fueled by him. And so in the same way, we get things like baptism, which is an amazing covenant-making moment where we commit to what God has called us to, where we commit to his promise of salvation. And so on the hard day of faith, we have a day that we can think back to, even though it doesn't feel great right now. I remember a day when I was wet, when I was drenched, and when I committed, made covenant with God, that I would be faithful to Him. 
And it's not based on me. It's actually a commitment and a covenant made on his promise. And so these things are so important in reminding us, in reaffirming within us the love God had for us, but also the commitment we made for the hard day. I love it. Baptism is actually a step of obedience. Um, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 that the cup I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with, I, with, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And so obedience matters because commitment matters. And so we so value a moment like baptism because we understand it's doing a lot of things. And so if you've been and seen baptism here, you will know it is always a part of our gathering and part of our worship time. And that's intentional. It's not done afterwards with a select few people. It is done front and center because we value it. Number one, because it's obedience to God, obedience to what Jesus called us to do to baptize people. But number two, it is also a powerful moment for the person getting baptized in that moment where they will make the commitment, stand on the covenant that they're making. And so that's why they will give their testimony before they get dunked. And thirdly, we understand the power of witness it has because it actually can be a witness to us and to others that God has done this or God wants to do this in your life. And so every single baptized person in this church will invite guests to come and support them, Christian and non-Christian, those who love them, care and support them because it's so important that they see this commitment happen and know, hey, Jesus wants the same for you. That's baptism. Actually, I forgot about this. We actually have our next baptisms coming up and they're super special. And they're actually gonna be coming up on Easter Sunday. And so if you wanna sign up and take that step and be baptized here, you can actually sign up for that after this. This is where I'm gonna wrap it up. As the band can join me on stage, I wanna take a deep look at communion because we're gonna prepare ourselves to actually take communion. It's not just about, hey, this is what we believe. We wanna actually do it together. Communion is also known as the Lord's table. I think communion's boring. The Lord's table is so much better because it's the meal that we get to have as we commune with God, as we remember what Jesus did. And actually, it, it goes back to his last night before the cross. And 1 Corinthians 11 says this in verse 24, when he, that's Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So again, we do this in obedience because obedience matters, commitment matters. I love what Tim Chester said. He put it like this. If baptism is like a wedding, then communion is like an embrace. Communion is the reaffirmation of covenant love. And so there is so much going on in our taking of communion. It's first and foremost gonna help us remember the death of Jesus for our sins. But secondly, it's actually gonna call us to take a look and examine ourselves and perhaps there's even sin we're stuck in right now that we need to repent of before we take this communion. Thirdly, it actually unites us as a corporate people where we get to together remember and celebrate what Jesus did and how he brought us together as a family and a church to be on mission for him. And the last thing it does is it actually helps us anticipate our future hope, our eternal hope, that Jesus is a king on a throne, that he's ruling and reigning now, and that his kingdom will come in its fullness in eternity. And so we have a hope that goes beyond the dark of this world. We have a hope that goes beyond the turmoil of this world because we know Jesus will make all things new, that he will correct every wrong. And so communion takes a different moment for us. Why don't you stand with me? If you've taken communion with us, before or especially several times you will notice that we never do it as a routine 
it's never necessarily done the same way via the same script. And the reason for that is if it is a dramatic representation of the gospel, it means that's multifaceted. And perhaps on that day, Jesus is trying to highlight one truth within his gospel. And perhaps he's trying to find one response. So there might be a day that we take communion and it's quite somber and reflective. Because the word for the day and what God is speaking to us and what God is doing amongst us is actually a word that's going to challenge and we need to reflect, hey God, what are you calling us to? There'll be another day where it's celebratory and super hype because we get to celebrate and, and cheers what God has done for us. We value it so much because it's a moment that we get to do it under the Lordship of Jesus. It's why it's for those who are under the Lordship of Jesus because it unites us in the mission and as the family that God has brought us together to be. And so as you get yourself ready, you'll have a cup and a wafer. And that bread really, as Jesus in his own words said, represents his body that would be laid down for us. It's a moment we get to remember that there was a debt that needed to be paid and someone had to pay it. And as we get to the cup, that his blood had to be shed so that that debt could be paid. And so we take the bread and we eat it and we remember Jesus. And he takes the cup and it's the cup of redemption. Knowing that we are washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus. That he took on our unrighteousness unto himself. So that his righteousness could be put onto us and we're made white as snow as he is. So that we're brought into an eternal relationship with our creator so that we can enter the holy of holies and we approach with great confidence knowing that we have a father in heaven who cares for us, who makes us co-heirs, who adopts us as sons and daughters together with Jesus. And so we take and we drink and we remember that sacrifice. And before we prepare ourselves to worship, I just want to pray. Because I hope every single time we come to a communion or a baptism, our view is, is raised. The value that we see in Scripture of these things is so high, and we can never be flippant about it. The same is true for when we sing. The same is true for when we raise our hands, when we raise our voices. This is not group karaoke. This is worship of the King. So Lord, we raise our hands, we raise our hearts, we raise our voices knowing that we have a God who cares, a God who is worthy of our worship. Would you take our offerings, our sacrifices, would you take the, our worship and would it be made acceptable by the blood of your Son? The spotless Lamb, the one who knew no sin but became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Lord, we lift up our everything to glorify your name would we worship as a people brought together by you united by your blood united by your message united by your good news and we celebrate and we call you to to bring us together to get on the mission that you have set for us let's worship together let's sing jesus is our prayer on the back end of communion remembering what you have done remembering 
the, the great love with which you have loved us, which you lavished upon us, which met us in our mess, which transformed us from our unrighteousness and made us white as snow. It's in that place with that God-given identity made clean that we stand. And Lord, it puts us in a space where you gather us as your church and you give us a mission and you call us to a world that so desperately needs that love, that so desperately needs the new wineskin, not the old wineskin, that so desperately needs the righteousness, not the unrighteousness. And you choose that the manifold wisdom of God would come through the church. Lord, would we be the church that you call us to be? Would we be the church, your hands, your feet, that advance your gospel and advance your kingdom? You know, for those people who have been taking notes, you probably noticed out of the five essentials of church, I only mentioned four. The last one, number five, is that an essential to being the church is being mission focused. It doesn't just end at God saving you and me, in God loving you and me, and that's it. It's actually that with the love that we have been loved with, we actually get to extend it to those in our community, to those beyond our community. The Bible actually commands us to do two things in being mission focused. There's a command to witness. Jesus says it in his last words before he gets sense that there will be power in the Holy Spirit and power to be witnesses to the world. And there's a command to love. He gives us that we would love one another. In John 17, his high priestly prayer, he prays to God that we, his church, his people, would love one another in such a way that the world would look at it, be confused by it, and it actually would be a witness of God's love to them. That's how we should love one another. The Bible calls us to uh, love fellow Christians. It calls us to love strangers. It calls us to love our neighbors. It calls us uh, to love our leaders. It calls us to love those who are difficult to love. And it's only through the love of God that actually we can break through in darkness, in fear, in circumstance, in tough situations. And so a church that is mission focused, a church that's obedient to his word and obedient to his spirit is going to know that we will run towards the mess, that we run towards the lost because we want to see less divorces, we want to see less abuse, we want to see less corruption and we know primarily that starts with the foundation of someone becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so we have a heart for the lost that they would be saved. And we have a love for a world who needs it so desperately. It starts here, but it extends outward. You're not just the church in this building. You're the church when you leave. In the same way that a family is still a family when dad is at work. We're the church even beyond this place. And so it's my encouragement. It's my challenge to us that we would be mission focused. That we would be witnesses and that we would love the world as God has called us to Father God, would you be the one who does this? Because we know, Lord, we are only witness to the truth of you, and we can only love with the love that you've given. And so none of this is based on us. None of it's based on our knowledge, on our qualification, on our strength. It's only based on you. And so would you set us up as the church you've called us to be, the church you desire us to be, and the church that will be fueled by you as we advance your kingdom in the ways you call us to. Would you be over every individual? Would you be over us corporately? Would City Hope Church be built on the gospel, the good news of Jesus and nothing else? 
And everybody said, amen. Hey, we are so glad you joined us for the 10 a.m. If you joined online, if you were in the room, we're so glad you were here. There are a million things to sign up for. And so if you're online, you can email us to sign up, but sign up for Landing uh, Institute Marriage Conference Baptisms. You can do that all afterwards. Otherwise, have an amazing Sunday. God bless.